Hey guys, thanks for taking the drive down State Street. In today's episode, we welcome the cameraman for your brand and content and branding strategist, Jace Kalekow. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to State Street, where we give voice to the everyday person. Hey guys, this is, is the co-host, the voice, Nick Leitch, and with me as always, Mr. Cole Szynski. How are you on this fine evening, my good sir? Nick, I'm good. I, uh, I'm, I'm happy to report that we've had another successful guest on this, epi- on, on this podcast. This episode specifically, I feel like we cover... Um, such a wide range um and some of these things it it was so interesting to me how we jumped around a little bit um it was really fun with jace being a guy who is in a creative space i did feel like we were all over the place and i love that about creative people how you can just be on one topic and you can be hammering it so hard and we'll just take a complete 90 degree turn and dive into something that there may be the smallest tie-in, there may be no correlation whatsoever, um, but the depth of the conversation just continues to be the exact same. It stays very consistent, and and it's very easy to get on, on those deep levels where you're covering topics and speaking on things that um, hopefully are inspirational, hopefully resonate with people outside of just the three that were on this episode um, and and carry some true weight that, that people can um, something from or apply to, to their lives. Yeah, it was super fun to get Jason just because uh, the timeliness of, of where we're at as a podcast, but more so just someone that dips their toe um, or excuse me, dives the fuck into the creative space. I think he loves it. I think he takes ownership of it. Uh, He is someone that has really put a structure and a process or systematized, as he would say, uh, to the creative endeavor. And and I don't know about you, Cole, but we, we get to dip our toe in a little bit here and there, but we certainly don't totally commit to what it means to be creative content creation, how do you manage your time? How do you manage your windows of when you can be creative or not? And can you even really manage that? You know? Yeah, dude, it, 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 they're all, they're all great things. They all lead to deep conversations. And I think that's exactly what we intended and hopefully succeeded in covering this evening. It's always cool when someone tells you whether it's someone that that's come on this podcast and has been a guest or someone that's listened to this podcast, that is exactly what I needed at this point in time in my life. And I think that is something that I, when, when we started this, Nick, I never even really planned on um, or, or expected to happen. And it's always so cool when you have the type of conversations that we have, especially with Jace this evening, um, and we jump off and we're done recording. And he's like, this is exactly what I needed at this moment in time. And so those are the things that like make this all worth it. Those are the things that you don't even realize when you're, you're having the conversations that, that we have on this podcast with everybody that comes, that, that comes on, um, that it, it's, it, it's so mind blowing to me and it, it is, really is gratifying and I truly am thankful for it all. 
Yeah, I uh, I know we don't ask probably everyday questions to people and we force them to think, which I'm not sure. I think Jace enjoyed it. Uh, sometimes I think we maybe press into people too much, but I was gonna say uh, I think he he took exception to that. Just being the questions we asked were <laughs> were insanely in depth and tough. Yeah, no no doubt about that. The other thing I think that's cool about Jace, and we get into this towards the back end of the conversation, uh, just some just some really true struggle that he went through. But I, I call it true because more people are probably going through something like he had went through, not specifically his journey, of course, but just different mental and emotional challenges uh, that we don't necessarily have proper guidance on early in life uh, to work through that stuff. So we got kind of raw, kind of into some deep stuff, which I always enjoy doing, and you know that. Um, but that's the other kind of refreshing part about speaking with Jace is he was open-minded to that. He wanted to inspire someone that is maybe struggling with what he struggled with. And and all in all, I think it was an awesome conversation. Um, plus, we have a very debatable four-question portion, which uh, I know we've had some rich four-question segments in the past, but uh, I will not divulge any further. So guys, buckle up here, uh, get in the car, and let's hop on State Street. Booyah, booyah. All right. <clears throat> Jace, what's going on, man? Not much. Feeling good. I, I'm so excited to be on here. Um, I'm leaving from a bachelor party uh, on a few days. So this is definitely the, you know, it's kind of like almost the Friday of my week. So it's a great way to cap off the week, even though it is still kind of early on. So extremely <laughs> excited. Um, thanks for having me on. Absolutely, man. Yeah, we couldn't have caught you at a better time. I wanted to get this squeezed in before you just relax and kick your feet up. And congrats again on that as well, too. I think that's awesome that you guys are, are tying the knot this year. That's great. Um, perfect. Well, hey, man, I'm going to have Cole introduce himself uh, and let the residents kind of we'll dive in after that, actually. Jace, it's it's good to meet you, man. It's good to have you on. Um, congratulations on clearly getting engaged. That's a big deal. Um, and getting to getting to spend the your the rest of your life with with someone obviously very very special. Um, super cool. I'm just curious. What uh, give us a little insight, like what the bachelor party is going to entail? Maybe one or two things that if you have if you don't have an idea, what's on your wish list? Or if you have an idea, like what you're most looking forward to? Good question. Whenever all of my groomsmen were trying to plan out this bachelor party, they're like, Jace, what do you want to do? And I literally just want to golf. That's it. Just want to golf. So we're going to Lake of the Ozarks. We're going to play three rounds. Um, these nice courses that I probably have no business playing. Going to shoot like a 95, but hey, we're <laughs> going to have a heck of a time. <laughs> well, you are, uh, you're, you're talking to two guys tonight that have very simple taste. And so I think Nick and I, I see him shaking his head over there, just really appreciate a very simple, maybe, I, I don't know if Right word. I don't know if you'll be crushing beers or doing that. Whatever. I mean, this podcast we like to be productive, but hey, I mean, we're also we're we're how we're we're all how old? I mean, we still have a few beers and get a little rowdy on the golf course, especially even more so when you're shooting a ninety-five. Amen. I will. <laughs> I will say there will be plenty of of shotguns and uh, and plenty of tequila shots. So good deal. Well, we're we're excited. Oh, you pl well, plenty of those. You always got to have those, especially off the tee. Yeah. Uh, we're excited to have you, man. I, it, it sounds like Nick has drawn up a, a lot of really good topics of discussion for the evening. Uh, we, we promise not to keep you too long, um, just for your sake, for our sake, and, and the listener's sake, as always. But um, we're, we're stoked to have you. I'm going to turn it right back to Nick. And 
Uh, I'm going to make sure I keep my my ears open just for good opportunities to to ask you some some tough questions, maybe. That'll be awesome, man. I'm I'm excited to dive in. It'll be more of a uh, an open dialogue, um, but I think what you do professionally, Jace, will be cool to talk about uh, for two reasons. First, we just had someone that was a little bit more on the tactical sales side, so having a creative conversation will be a little bit in in 180 to that. Uh, but also, man, it's always great just to have a new resident on State Street. It's always exciting for that. So. Um, I'm actually going to start in a unique place, man. I'm going to bring up the War of Art. I know you read that book. I know you appreciated that book. Um, we'll uh, we'll give a little bit of an overview uh, of that real quick, and then I'm going to ask you a question. So essentially, this book is about battling the inner uh, writer's block, creative block, what have you. Uh, and Stephen Pressfield, the author, uh, labels it as resistance, and resistance is what is constantly fighting that fight against us. So Without further ado, man, so what was what was your favorite takeaway from that book if you had to label maybe one or two? The so it's split into three parts, right? Um, the last part really just blew my mind. Um, I didn't I didn't really know that it was gonna kind of go that route, but essentially my my favorite part and the takeaway that I think of literally every day is that your your art and what you create is actually not, you can't attach a title to it. It's not yours. Your art is already in the world and you are a vehicle in which um, the art is expressed, right? And so it's, it's a powerful thing because it almost takes a pressure off of you in terms of creation um, and allows you to really think about how best can I put myself an opportunity to receive um, inspiration, um, all of that, and, and really just how best can I be a mirror to the art that's already out there? Yeah, man. I See, I love this already because for those that haven't read the book, this is going to be opening their ears a little bit. So if you had to explain the sensation of having information in the universe pre-created, let's say, and you're the vehicle, if you had to explain that to maybe a, like a, a senior in high school or a younger kid, how would you describe that? I think when you, when you grow up um, kind of going through high school and trying to figure out who you are, there's a lot of pressure on identity. Um, and with that pressure of, of identity, it's, you kind of get confused between um, who, it, who you actually are and who you're meant to be. And no, but when you, when you are in high school and you are, are growing up, you, you get confused between who you're meant to be and who you aspire to be. And you always see role models, right? People look a lot at, at role models and I aspire to be this person or I aspire to be LeBron James or an artist or something like that. And you get kind of lost in the, the habit of like mimicking a little bit instead of trying to, to figure out who am I, what should I be putting out into the world? Um, but then you go at the a next level. And so that's like kind of when you're, when you're younger. But when you start to come into yourself, and this is what I did too when I was, you know, in 21 or 22, I started to come into myself. But then you start to get a little bit um, almost selfish in your content creation. You find out who you are, right? Like, oh, I get it. You kind of go through college or you're 21, 22. You kind of figure out, get the ropes of who you are. Um, and you start to get a little bit selfish and saying like, I am, a, I'm a creator. I'm, I'm trying to create all this awesome energy, all this awesome art. And what Stephen Pressfield opened my eyes to was 
now the next step in my career, which is I am not the hero. That go dives into Donald Miller's story brand if you've ever read that. I am not the hero in my creation, right? I am the guide. It's kind of this mm-hmm. like kung fu stuff, but it's a real progression that you you kind of have to just live through and and go through the, the works. But um, when you take the approach of being the guide and, and being the mirror, I think it eases some pressure on identity when there's a lot of, especially social media and all of that, a lot of focus on identity. Um, just try to mirror, man. Yeah, well, and I, I'm glad that you brought that up because I think that when you're younger, you don't actually know there's a second level of thinking. And like, what I mean by that is like, you're so focused on what is next and who I am, like you said, versus when you get older, you realize like, oh my gosh, like I don't have to impress certain people or I don't have to like follow along with what the crowd is doing. I literally can like do my own thing. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a perfect kind of lead into um, the, the previous guest we had about sales um, and, and strategy and all that, because whenever I made the switch from just being a creator to actually being in the real professional world, I, I worked at a marketing agency for a couple of years. I did cold calls. I did sales. I did, I like grinded, did all of that. And what I learned though, is you really learn that, that people, businesses, um, your clients have legitimate issues, like legitimate issues. And you, again, are not the hero in, in that issue. You're just guiding them and you're just straight up helping. You're helping people. And when you're younger, a lot of times you don't have that ability to work for like a marketing agency or to be in a sales role. But when you go through that process and you grind, you, you kind of come out on the other side with a different perspective. Um, and so if anyone listening is in a cold call or sales role that they hate, you will thank yourself later, I promise you. <laughs> Hey, State Street gang, we're going to steal you away real quick. Uh, Cole, I actually have a couple of promos to run by you. What do you got, Nick? I'm excited to hear. So the first one is our partners over at Driftless Quality Wear actually have a new website coming out, and you can find them at driftlesswaltywear.com. No way. Dude, that's awesome. So how does State Street factor into that? Yeah, great question. So for all the folks that haven't purchased anything on their website, go ahead and prior to checking out, if you enter State Street, uh, you'll actually get a 10% discount off the entire cart. Okay. What kind of things do they have? Do they have like outdoor wear since it's getting cold here? Yeah, great question. And it really is getting cold. So they have crewnecks, long sleeves. I actually got a long sleeve myself, beanies. Uh, They even go as far as camping mugs, which I think that's awesome. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So tell me again how I get this and where I need to go. Yeah, so go ahead and type in State Street at checkout and receive 10% off your entire cart purchase. Cool, man. I can't wait. Let's get back to the show. Thanks, guys. Oh, man, we, uh, we could both attest to that. I think having there, there's two things I would want my child to go through before they are really in their professional um, setting. The first is working in a restaurant setting. I think being a server and a waiter opens your eyes to a variety of different things and how to treat people, people skills, et cetera, et cetera. But the other is going through cold call sales and just getting beat up, bloodied, and just thrown around a little bit. I think it kind of helps create that natural resilience towards life. But um, 
Well, we're so we're going to. I'm going to ask you this, and then we'll revert back to the book. So, what are you doing professionally right now? So, just explain kind of what you do, your position, company, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so I am a videographer and content and branding strategist. So it's kind of uh, a little bit wooey wooey, sort of. But uh, I basically just break it down into. I take the the cool parts and like the sexy parts of videography and I pair them with all of the nerdy marketing and branding and analytics and I kind of mash them together. Um, so I have my own business called Social Cinema and then my current like day job right now is I work for a, a company called Investor Plus, which is a real estate investment company and I handle all of their like video content. And I'm just starting out into into YouTube, so I've been like a doing a YouTube channel for like three months now, and YouTube is a whole another world, brother. It, but it's it's amazing. YouTube is amazing, absolutely incredible. But yeah, that's what that's kind of what my day to day looks like. I'm on YouTube a lot, making YouTube videos. I do a lot of TikToks, um, mm. but there's a lot of strategic elements that I add to like TikToks and YouTube, which a lot of people might not even consider, but um, creating value props, creating like scripts and all these things for TikToks, for TikToks, like what? <laughs> but that's the mark, like people need, need that stuff, you know? And uh, I kind of just try to create my own little, little niche there. Gotcha. Yeah, because I've noticed even the, the top influencers are making TikToks now just to stay relevant, which is incredible. Um, I would never say I'm a professional and knowing on what the hell the, the world's got going right now, but I love that we can kind of bounce some things off you. So to get tactical a little bit, so are you literally like making like an hour or two worth of content a day or what does a week look like for you? Yeah, so I have a kind of a spreadsheet of just like outputs that we try to just figure out, okay, what is a perfect week look like? And then work backwards from there. We don't always hit it, but a perfect week would essentially be around three YouTube videos. Um, and we say three YouTube videos, we'll do, we originally started trying to do six TikToks a day. Don't try to do six TikToks a day, that's, that's too much. Um, but we do six YouTube, or three YouTube videos a week. Um, we try to do three TikToks a week. Um, and then we repurpose our YouTube videos into LinkedIn and Instagram posts. Um, so YouTube is kind of the, the pillar. YouTube and TikTok are like the pillars. And then we just kind of repurpose footage from there. Gotcha, gotcha. And that's interesting too, because you say that. And to me, I'm just in a different world because we're in sales. So like when you say six, tic, six TikToks a day, I'm like, oh, I feel like I could do that. But based on your reaction, I, I guarantee I couldn't. <laughs> You totally could do six TikToks, but there's a there's a, a threshold where you start to say, is this actually worth it? Am I getting the results that I want to? Am I getting 1% better with every upload, right? And mm. once you hit that threshold mm. of, I'm not getting 1% better, you need to dial it back a little bit, put in some time, put in some energy, figure out how to get better and, and then execute on that. So that'll be a, uh, sorry, hold on real quick, Cole. Sure. Um, so that will be a definite topic of conversation. Uh, Cole, I know you had a couple for Jace. Go ahead. Well, I, I was just curious, Jace. Is it I, – because I, I've found with this podcast even, like we have kind of reached a point where it's not so much about the quantity you're putting out. It's about the quality. 
And kind of what you said to the effect of getting 1% better with each TikTok you put out or each, whether it's a, like a, a dance routine or you're repurposing like video, like video footage or something of that nature, we kind of find ourselves, it's like, okay, are we really getting better just by hammering out episodes twice a week, every single week, or is it better to, to put something out that's well thought out, a, a, a guest that is going to come on and be impactful every other week? And so is there a, is there a science to that? Is there a dynamic to that? Or for you, is that more of like a feel thing? Because I feel like in this space specifically, you hear a lot about the algorithm that seems to be a buzzword. So kind of enlighten us on that. I wish there was a, a direct science and a direct formula. Yes, there's, there are algorithms, but when you start out for the first six months or so, it really is about showing up and being consistent. Mm -hmm. um, but in your case, you guys have been doing this for a while. Um, if you have heard of, if you've heard of Think Media, the YouTube channel, Think Media, Sean Cannell is one of the guys that started it. Um, but I'm in a, his YouTube course, so he basically just helps YouTube uh, influencers, essentially. Um, but one of the, the kind of the biggest eye-opening points that he made, which I think is relevant to this conversation, is there's like this 50-50 rule that he does and that he did whenever he started. There's 50% of your time should be spent planning uh, content, shooting videos, um, looking at the, the analytics and the metrics. And then 50% of your time should be promoting your video. Um, a lot of people think of YouTube as just create, 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 just smashing through all of this content. And he's saying, you, gotta, you have to spend half of your time promoting it because it's in the, the promotion where you really start to meet the other influencers. You build that um, community that's actually going to be consistent growth instead of just like posting and praying that you're going to go viral, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. It's there. It's interesting to hear that while you hear about all these algorithms, and I'm sure a lot of times where we hear that are coming from people that go viral, that are like the TikTok superstars that are in the news that do the, like those massive interviews. But going from something that is not necessarily yet a monstrosity of a TikTok following or 1 million plus YouTube subscribers. It's interesting to hear that there is, um, there's almost a scheduling process instead of just trying to follow uh, a science or, or just, or, or doing something as simple as getting on that explore page or that for you page. Yeah. And there actually is, so the algorithm is a real thing. Um, when it comes to how does YouTube throw out your, your videos. And so the, the mm -hmm. biggest two metrics that YouTube looks at is watch time. So how much or how long do you keep your viewer on your video or on YouTube in general? And then the other one is a, a click-through rate. So that is whenever your thumbnail shows, like an impression, whenever your thumbnail shows, how often does it get clicked on? And so it's kind of pros and cons, right, when it comes to, to YouTube that if you have a killer thumbnail and a killer title and you keep your viewer on your video, you're going to rock it. But that's it. Like that's all, that's all YouTube cares about right now. It's not even subscribers. Subscribers aren't really that important right now. And so when people are just starting out, they're just like, I need to grow subscri like a subscriber base, which, you know, yes, it is important. But if you're trying to make money right away, 
and get to like YouTube AdSense and all of that, keep your your viewers on your video and have killer thumbnails. Mm-hmm. And we can, I mean, affiliate marketing and all that stuff. That's another another conversation. But that's affiliate marketing is essentially the fastest way you can make money um, on YouTube. Interesting. Well, we we may have to hear a little bit about that off air just to put that into the works. But Nick, I know you. I I know you wanted to get back to the book, so I'll turn it back to you so you can you can kind of keep us on track. Yeah, you're good, man. Those are good questions. Um, so just to tie this uh, short portion or beginning portion together, so you talked about being tactical and what you're trying to output on a weekly basis. Where do you utilize the philosophy of Pressfield's like universe, as you said, the being the vehicle, right? So how do you, we'll say, drive the vehicle of being open to the source, but then creating the content on a tactical basis? So I know that's kind of a loaded question, but essentially, how do you either generate it? How do you connect with it and take creative, but put it into actual work? Okay. so. You can, you can think and plan all you want. And sometimes I force myself into, into thinking and into planning and trying to um, find whatever that inspiration. Try to, to you know, put, put the address into Google Maps and try to follow the, ve- you know, drive your vehicle and try to find it. And what I've, is really where you start to connect um, kind of connect the dots and connect the pieces is through just action. It really just, you have to take action. And I have to tell myself this all the time because I can get stuck days trying to think and plan and, th- and, and think of all these details and try to, you know, where does that register with, um, you know, the brand and the image and what I want to portray and where does that register with, you know, that, that mirror, that, what, what we talked about that, uh, well, as you're driving the vehicle, you know, um, but the best thing that I've found to connect to that source is really just con- taking consistent action every single day, whenever, and even when you really, really, really don't feel like it and, and forcing yourself to make all those TikToks, which sounds so silly, right? Like you just have to make TikToks and you're going to connect to the source. Like, what does that even mean? Um, but consistently taking action and really committing to getting 1% better every single time, you learn so much. Um, yeah, you just, you just learn, learn so much. Yeah, and I, so that's exactly what I wanted you to answer with just because uh, that is where I think people can get caught up with the beginning stages of an endeavor. So like for us, we had to nervously try to create an episode of a podcast and it went awful. It was so bad. However, the consistency of it, you begin to find that rhythm. And I feel like, and I'd like Cole to chime in as well too, because he had a lot of creative nature that helped build this thing as well. When you're in that routine, you're not going to strike gold every time, but every fifth time you're going to catch something sharp, I think. Is that what you'd say, Cole, or how would you input to what we're talking about? Yeah. So I guess I would, I would try to answer it by asking Jace a question. It would be more so the term that gets thrown around, I think, is a paralysis by analysis or, or analysis paralysis, right? Where it's like, we get so caught up, and I can, I can imagine, and Jace, you can be the, the one to vindicate this or, or confirm it. Um, is it easy to slip into that kind of analysis paralysis and 
thinking so much and brainstorming so much because I noticed that was one thing you put on like the the sheet that we had you fill out talking about what you're passionate about and it was thinking, planning, outlining, brainstorming, all these things that require some sort or form of analysis doesn't always mean progress. And so I guess my question would be, is there a way, kind of like Nick is is talking about, to stretch that creative brain or flex that creative muscle that you need in order to be successful and to, to continue to get that 1% better each time while being in that analysis state of mind? Yeah, the the what you just said where um just because you are thinking and planning does not mean you're making progress that was the biggest freaking mind mind blown fact that i finally came to terms with um and so to try to answer your question as best as possible it is extremely easy to to fall into that uh th- that analysis that of by paralysis or paralysis by analysis uh, it's extremely easy because once you get to the stage where you have exhausted all of your kind of talent and resources of where you're at that time, you kind of understand, okay, now I really need to be intentional about how I'm planning. I need to be really intentional about how I am um, outlining my, my videos or my scripts or all of that. And in that process, you have to really, really be careful because you start to think of all these ideas, all these new things that I've started, new inspiration that's, that's come to you. And you really have to set parameters around um, your creativity and parameters around your content. And I've heard this before on other podcasts. I wish I remember which one it was. But creativity works best in, in parameters because then you know when to push the envelope and when to break out of the shell and you're intentional about that decision. Right, so I'd say... Um, the best way to continue to flex that creative muscle while you're stuck in that planning stage is don't be afraid to to set those parameters when you're at the the growth stage and when you're ready to take that kind of next level and you're ready to scale your content or scale you know, your social media or whatever because um, you can be flooded with ideas and flooded with all of these um, even like if you have a team or you work with a business partner or something like that more cooks in the kitchen doesn't always mean it's a it's a great thing. So it's important to to have a a vision um, and make sure that whatever plan that you come up with, you hold each other accountable to just execute and take action. Sure, sure. So I'm gonna I'll, I'll turn it back to Nick, but I do have one question that kind of comes off of that for you specifically, Jace. Just to kind of give a personal testimony to that, when you are in a true planning state or a true brainstorming state where you're coming up with ideas, you're trying to get things planned out so it is truly going to be right, and, and you truly are making progress with this kind of thing, it, it's a true intentional planning period, I guess we'll say. Do you personally, do you structure it up and say, okay, I'm going to come up with X amount of ideas or I'm going to limit myself to X amount of time before I get up and start to put this into in, in into action, put it like like use actually use it in a video, start getting footage on this, actually try it out and just see if it feels right, if it looks good, if it if if you are confident in it, if you think it'll be a success, or is it more so an ebb and flow? Yeah, it can be kind of both. It can be kind of both. Um definitely setting if you're just talking about idea generation, right? Mm-hmm. Setting a, a t- setting the time limit and giving yourself a start and an end to ideas and 
letting yourself just run wild in that hour or whatever. Um, that's kind of when we talk about finding that source or whatever, put on really good music. I, I just like listen to music, um, yeah. whatever it is. And that's kind of how I, you know, get going. But, um, setting, setting a time limit for idea generation is almost a, a necessity. Um, and then when it goes, when it comes to trying to start that planning process, it depends. So it, it depends who you're working with and who's on your team. Um, when I work with my clients, it's always, there's always a, some sort of schedule, right? Like they're back and forth, back and forth, and we'll set out like a two hour time block and I'll lay out the expectations ahead of time saying, this is what we're going through. Boom, 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 boom. They kind of have some ideas coming into the meeting. But so when I work at my day job and it's my boss and, and we're kind of talking through all these planning, he is on the phone like every five minutes. Because he's a he's a real estate wholesaler investor, and people just ping him literally nonstop, and so it gets pretty tough when you you think about who's the real decision maker, and yeah. trying to weave those dynamics of we need to come up to a decision and a conclusion, but um, you haven't fully gone through that process yet, and that's where it can get kind of tough. Um, too. Yeah, the la- the last thing I have, and then I promise Nick, I'll I'll, I'll turn it back to you. Um, just because it, it, it popped in my brain, you're doing all of that. And, and maybe, and, and you said, Jace, that you do set those parameters or you do set those time limits or idea limits. Is that hard to do? Or when, when you're, I guess, what is it hard to do when you're rolling? So maybe you, you got that music in, you've been going for 30 minutes and the ideas are just coming to you. Maybe it's separate ideas or maybe it's one big idea that just continues to play off each other and play off each other. And it's like, okay, I can add this or we can do this or, oh, hey, if I'm going to do this in the future, maybe I want to tweak this in the, in the short term. Is it beneficial? Is it easy to limit yourself then, even when you're rolling so that you don't maybe come up with too many ideas or come up with too big of a plan that gets you ahead of yourself? So when you, it can get hard. It can get hard to limit yourself if you're really in the flow, but it comes down to if you are really, truly committing yourself to your craft and committing to showing up every day, committing to getting 1% better every day, you start to get in the habit of once you, once you land on something, they're like, oh, that's, that's pretty good. You're, you're, you kind of immediately have that urge and have that instinct to be like, I can't wait to see this through. I can't wait to, to fully develop this out because you understand that if you're really truly committing to 1% better and, and committing to your craft, craft is not idea generation. Craft is idea generation, execution, and, and tracking and analytics and all of that. That is what you're committing to. And so once you find that idea that sticks, um, you know, just kind of reflect, ask yourself, like if, if you're committed to showing up, man, then you got to take the next step. You got to keep going. But if you're not, then you can get stuck in that, that first stage. And that's what I did when I first started out doing videos too. Um, I just liked the idea of being a videographer. I thought it was so cool. You know, I would think of all these ideas. I'd even write all of these outlines and treatments and plans. And then it came down to actually execute. I'm like, Oh, that sounds kind of hard. Like, I don't know mm-hmm. if I, I don't know if I actually want to see it through. I was kind of scared. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. Well, no, I, I love where that dialogue was going. Um, there is one more thing I wanted to touch on specifically with creativity 
how it strikes, what you can, how you can be open to the source. Uh, I just I love that because if you're someone that has a day to day job, uh, nine to five, and you do the same shit every day, uh, or if you're in a sales role like myself, you do the same process on a regular basis. So the other part of the creative thing is like, and I think this is so cool. Like you have to think and see the world in a very different way. Because when we started this podcast, I got begin to see this in a different light. And I started to notice all of a sudden ideas were popping up that regarded to the podcast, even though I was like making phone calls, mid phone call, I'd be like, oh my God, I got to write that down because that's actually a good idea. So talk a little bit on idea momentum, because I think, and I, I literally just made this up on the spot. But like, I feel like when you have an idea for something and you may not know exactly what it is, somehow your subconscious knows how to formulate that over time. Or like when you're driving home from a trip, it'll like hit you and be like, oh my gosh, that's what we need to do. Have you ever had that happen to you? Or like, how do you have that idea, like kind of build and build and build and all of a sudden you got this beautiful final product? Yeah, idea momentum is a good way to put it. I think that's, that's really that's interesting. I really like that idea. Like I can, I can see that in a box right here. Um, that feels good. I like that word idea momentum. <laughs> um, I, to answer that question, I I'd say that this is when me personally, I think planning and, and system systematizing things does help because if you can, if you can systematize and, and have certain processes for your creative process, and even the things that suck that you're doing in your business, and you know that's almost like on automation, like you, it's just like, don't even have to worry about it. It actually frees up your mind a little bit um, and allows you to kind of float on top of, of what's the actual work being done while it's still being done, right? And allow yourself to, you know, kind of soak in whatever's happening, and you're, but you're still kind of pushing boulders down the hill, still getting things done. Um, that answer your question? Yeah, it's just a, a, a different way of putting it into someone that like you do that every day. Whereas for me, we only have this kind of a part-time thing. Um, cool. Well, that was awesome. And I love diving into that because I, that is not, like I said, what we do at all. Um, but I think it has helped in other sales conversations because there is a creativity to sales because you have to get to the end goal in a, in a way that isn't, okay, step one, step two, step three. You got to kind of fly on the seat of your pants and adjust to people. Um, but I'll, I'll end it with this quote. So I'm not sure who wrote this, but I know I'm pretty sure you'd be familiar with it. But it said, it's funny. I find that in my inspiration uh, strikes every morning at nine o'clock sharp. Um, and it's from an author that writes very consistently. So his whole point is like, if you do it consistently, you kind of control the portal from the universe inputting into you. Um, so I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but then we'll move on to uh, the next part here. Yeah, absolutely. And I, that leads into another uh, kind of concept from the war of art, which is the difference between an amateur and a professional, right? And, and a true professional is one that just commits to showing up every day and is, is committing to being in the arena. And so re repeatedly doing that and being in the, in the arena, um, you start to have this, this kind of inspirational moments, right? Like you just got to commit, man. Absolutely. I, uh, I saw you light up a little bit there. I love that. And I actually forgot about that whole concept in the book for, you know, uh, forgive me for not even bringing that up, but just for the sake of time, man, we're going to bounce around a little bit here. So you, uh, you were a college athlete at, at one point and 
We're just so the listeners know, we're going to go in a totally different direction. We're going to back up a little bit, get a little backstory here. So talk about competing at the division two level at a school that has a lot of respect in the track and field arena. Uh, I don't want to lead into it too much myself just because I didn't compete with the team and I wasn't competing at all. Uh, I did watch it from the sidelines, but just talk about just going in through that and, and, you know, getting into shape to compete at a national level. Yeah, uh, I'll start real quick at the at the high school level and just try to um, do a quick dive through the whole the whole process. Um, I, I threw shot and discus in high school. Uh, I was I was good, not great. I I only made it to state like the state meet once. So I never was all state or anything. Never got any scholarships to go to uh, any schools. Uh, my brother went to Central Missouri, and so that's kind of why I decided to go there. I didn't even know if I was going to do track then. But my coach was like, hey, Chase, you should probably just try it. And I talked with one of the coaches there. They said, yeah, you can walk on, see what happens. And showed up the first year. Um, I kind of was nervous and didn't know what the heck I was doing. Um, But the best part about Central Missouri track and field in general um the coaches and like you said the respect for the program there are just some of the the best like athletes that you will find in division two um track and field is it goes central missouri and so they truly just set the standard and set the bar for what you how things should be done how you should you know your mindset and um, what's it like to be a, a professional, right? Show up every day and be in the arena. And that's probably what I would, uh, that's probably what I would say is like the biggest con- contributing factor to my success was um, the community and the standard that, that was set before me. Yeah, I, me and Cole were actually just catching up on that off air on how we take for granted as college athletes at the division two level, the amount of structure that was imposed on us, whether we liked it or not. And at the time we dreaded it, of course, daily practice, weightlifting sessions, all that crazy madness. But post-college, do you think a lot of that structure has stuck with you in the workforce? I actually think there's a lot of pressure for me to, to keep the structure. And that's where a kind of a lot of, um, things went downhill for me after college was I would um, get really upset and really angry at myself because I had all of the success in college and I understood the process. I understood what it meant to show up. I understood work ethic. And when I wasn't doing it, I, I kind of beat myself up a little bit um, because I knew what success looked like. I knew how long it took to achieve success, right? It took me five years in college to actually achieve you know, legitimate success and so when i wasn't doing that post-college and other endeavors i was i was beating myself up man it was it was rough (laughs) well and i think too that self-sabotage in some way can be hard to deal with especially well we were fortunate enough jace to be honest with you we read a book uh one of the very first books we did i think it was literally the first book on the defining decade and it literally addressed the post-college what to do phases of your life. And had we not read that, I don't think I would be near to the progress I am today. I don't know if you would agree with that at all, Cole, but that book really set Mm -hmm. the tone. Um, I don't want to glance over this though, Jay. So you were, you play second at nationals in hammer or kind of give us a little taste of, uh, of you back in the UCM athletic days. 
Yeah, so my my senior season in outdoor, right? So there's two seasons of track and field. There's indoor, which takes place during the winter, and there's outdoor, which takes place in the spring. Um, so outdoor, I got a second place at in the hammer throw at nationals, and then indoor, I got seventh place in the weight throw. Um, so the difference between the weight throw and the hammer, uh, the weight throw is indoor, five pounds, and the hammer is outdoors and it's 16 pounds and it's a little bit longer of a of a wire gotcha gotcha so uh not not to like drill on this too much but why why do you think that you were able to have that that success in hammer in relevance to the the other throwing curse me for not knowing this terminology the question is why why do you think i had uh success more success with hammer in comparison to the other event Hmm. yeah so I, I never was a, a really strong person. I was always very technical. So I was, I was good at sports growing up, um, any like baseball, basketball, just random stuff. Um, so I always had the, the hand-eye coordination, right? Um, and so the weight throw is 35 pounds. It is a, I mean, imagine like a 35-pound toddler and just like throwing it 70 feet. Like, it sounds, what it sounds really funny. What a visual you just gave our listeners, Jace. You have... You have no idea. So my my coach has it's a, a really funny story. My coach at the time when I got seventh at nationals had a had a toddler that actually weighed thirty five pounds. I asked him after the national meet and I said, his name was Tucker. I said, Tucker, how how much does your, your kid weigh? He's like uh around thirty five pounds and he saw my eyes lit up and he knew where I was going with this. I was like, Tucker, you realize I could throw your your son twenty meters, right? Twenty meters. I just think about like wind it's a terrible it's a terrible thing to think about but like winding a toddler <laughs> over here i don't know it's crazy oh honestly though yeah and, and this is again cool for us because we're we're coming from a baseball background so that's like a different sport and all in its entirety and um i always found it cool to go down and watch emily compete and, and corbin and yourself and all the great people that i met down there because you see some serious athletes on the track and field like arena on the floor doing all that stuff that like we just we played in a totally different bucket uh, in school, but um, I know I'm kind of rambling a little bit here. Cole, did you have any questions for Jace before we move into the next part? Yeah, so I, I I'm just curious, and maybe this will lead into kind of what Nick was, is going to be talking about. But um, talk a little bit because I don't think people fully understand. We've had a we've had a couple um, track and field folks on. One of my really good friends who who ran cross country and track at Creighton um, on, but never anyone in like the field event category. Talk a little bit, Jace, about what your body goes through throughout those five, like that, that, those five years, because the fact that you said, you know, it took five years to get success. I'm sure there are changes mentally to your, your, your mental process, your, your thought process going into practice, thought process going into each throw in an, in a, uh, an event, um, at, at a meet, um, and talk about what physically has to happen in order to get to that level of success that ultimately you reach at a Division II level. Because I'm sure there are injuries that a baseball player wouldn't experience that someone throwing a hammer would experience. I'm sure there are muscles you use that you feel, especially having only thrown disc and shot in high school, that the first couple of times you do that after that first week of practice, it's like, boy, my body just doesn't feel right. And you're activating different muscles. So talk about all those things mentally, physically, what you go through getting adjusted and then getting to a point where you can really let your body thrive and take over. 
Um, hammer is probably the the hardest thing you could do to your body. I think there's there's other events like like pole vault's really hot on your back too, and um, even like running events too. Like you, there's so many injuries that happen to your legs and hamstrings and and hip flexors and all that. But um, hammer, it's really really important to have mass because mass moves mass, right? That's like first lesson that you learn whenever you walk into the track and field program is mm-hmm. if you if, if you're a hammer thrower or a thrower, mass moves mass, right? And so I wasn't very big. Um, I was walking into college around 215, um, not super strong, relatively strong, not anything crazy, not ripped or anything. Um, and then the weight in college, the weight of the implements, the weight of the shot, the weight of the disc goes up as well. Um, mm-hmm. So you really have to like get strong. <laughs> you have to get strong. And so what means someone that relied on technique, relied on speed, um, a lot on like agility sort of, it was a whole nother world because I mean, I was, first of all, I was terrible like my freshman year, um, but everybody knew, my coach knew like, dude, you have to gain weight, have to gain weight. And it, the, the, the weird part about it is that it doesn't have to be good weight. You just have mm-hmm. to gain mass. And that's, so, that's why, especially throwing in track and field is such a different sport than anything else. Um, I guess it's similar to like being a lineman in football, but even like linemen, you still have to be like you have to be, you have to be ready to run. Like, you're pulling mm-hmm. guard, man, you got to get going. Like, but with throwing, like I just had to be huge, which was such a weird concept to me. And whenever you get reinforced um, with success from being just like unhealthy amount of overweight, <laughs> so big, but you actually are seeing improvements. And your coach is like, oh, great job. And you're like winning meets and you start to see improvements. You kind of dig yourself into this really weird position um, and kind of this weird body image where you're like, okay, so this is a good thing, right? Then you start to, it's a whole other uh, box that opens up that I think a lot of athletes don't necessarily deal with. Um, Being forced to make your body look not athletic <laughs> yeah or, or not in shape but seeing success from it very interesting uh, dynamic well and i'm sure too if you get caught in that i i don't know if rut is a is a correct word or term to use here but but that's what i'm going to use use just for for lack of a better one um if you get caught in that rut it's it's a weird paradox that like you said jace you're accolades you're getting noticed you're seeing results you're pushing the limits of what you can do but i'm sure if one thing goes wrong it leads to another and then leads to another because that weight isn't good weight because you you know maybe maybe you look in the mirror and you're like man like i'm at like this is what peak performance in my sport looks like is that is that really the case um you know often i think of and and i know it's completely different but i think of the sport of golf kind of like we already mentioned how you know, if you're a smaller guy, but you can rotate a lot, like if you're really bendy, if you're really agile, they can, you you can get a lot more torque. I mean, is that something that you had to be conscious of is like being flexible, being able to, to like contort your body and move it while still throwing this heavy object. And if so, how did good weight versus bad weight play a factor into that then? Yes. It's all about rotational strength. And the first couple years, we did strength programs that were um, really focused on just general strength. Like, I just needed to gain weight. I was just gaining 
mm-hmm. bunch of weight, um, getting stronger. And so those were just a lot of Olympic lifts, doing a lot of cleans, snatches, squats, all that good stuff. Um, but whenever you kind of start to get to the point where, okay, I think I'm, I think I'm starting to level out, right? Mm-hmm. You really start to get into specific rotational um, movements and a lot of, um, a lot of like strength-based exercises that don't actually put a lot of load on your body. So I don't know if you've heard of like the, the like a pit shark machine, um, mm-hmm. but essentially you do squats, but like the the you have a weight belt that kind of connects that goes between your legs, and so you don't have you're not putting three hundred pounds on your back, but you're still getting the the motion, but it's a lot more efficient on your body, so it prevents injury. Um, but yeah, rotational strength. Um, I actually had a a couple really big injuries too because I wasn't strong enough, but mm-hmm. I had the speed because it's such a speed event. So I wasn't strong enough. Um, I threw out my back. I did all of the, whatever, the bulge discs, all of those bad things. Um, and then I had a, a torn labrum too in my shoulder um, because I was trying to go fast. I was trying to be as good as I possibly be, wanted to be successful. My body couldn't handle it because I just didn't have enough weight. And that's what kind of sparked the, uh, another factor to throw into the pool of why did I become so big? Why did I gain so much mm-hmm. weight? Because I had those injuries, and those injuries sucked. And I was like, well, if I just become 260 pounds, then I won't have those injuries. Which right. was true. I didn't have those injuries when I became 260. <laughs> when, so when, you are, when you're dealing with those injuries, um, is it, you know, especially as a track athlete, and really, I'll be honest, I, I didn't have a ton of injuries during college, so I really don't know this. When you're dealing with those injuries and you're trying to put on weight in order to see those results gained and to continue to push the limits of distance thrown in this case, is it easier or harder to, like, to, to add on or even maintain weight? Different for, different for everybody. For me, it's really easy to gain weight and it's really mm. easy to lose weight. Mm. Um, and so after the injuries, because I gained up a lot of weight, I gained a lot of mass, I was doing well. And then my, my sophomore and junior years where injuries kind of happened, and then I lost all of that weight again and I had to redo it all. Mm-hmm. And so I gained, um, I gained 45 pounds in like three or four months my senior year. Um, and that's when it was all bad weight, but I was still successful. So it's such a strange, it's a strange dynamic. Yeah, I, I, I can imagine. Nick, hopefully I've given you a little time to, to collect your thoughts. The, the one thing that, that I do want to ask Jay, so the, the, the road to the top and, and that climb is a steady one. It's a slow one. Um, often in cases the fall can be hard and that's kind of where I circle back to the book that Nick talked about that we read kind of uh, about all about the those years after college and how defining this decade of our 20s really is so what was what was that come down like for you you have a lot of success you play second at nationals it sounded like in your senior year do I have that right yeah, yeah. um after that, I mean, was it a steady decline? Did you know right away, okay, now it's time to lose all this weight. I'm, I want to get healthy. I, I don't want to feel like a thrower anymore. Um, or was it, I mean, what, what was it more drastic? Was it, holy, crap, now, now what am I supposed to do? I put on all this weight and now, you know, in your, the, uh, in the questionnaire, you talk about body image issues, emotional instability. 
were those things drastic? Were those things a, a slow decline or kind of where did that all fall? And then I'll turn it back to Nick to kind of carry the conversation from there. Great question. Um, if you would have asked me while I was in it, I would have said that it was a very slow um, decline. I would have said that uh, it's not that bad. I'm working hard. Like I'm trying, doing my best. Uh, ask me now, which is <laughs> uh, what you just did. You asked, ask me now. I was, it was extreme and it was rapid. It, mm. it hit really hard. Um, and I think it hits hard for people that, um, that fully identify with what they're doing in college. So if you're a baseball player, track athlete, if you fully identify it to your core, because um, sometimes that's what it takes to reach that level of success. You have to fully send it every single thing. You don't have time to think about what's going on after. You don't have time. Because if you do, right. you'll start to lose focus and you'll start to lose track of what's actually important um, in, that t- in that time of your life, right? Reaching those goals. Um, but once, once I was done, I legit just had no clue what was going on. I remember not eating for like 48 hours because like maybe that'll be the fastest way to lose, lose weight. Because um, again, it was such bad weight. It wasn't good weight. It wasn't even that strong. I think... I tried to try to deadlift like two weeks after I competed and my deadlift went down by like probably 75 pounds. Wow. Because I was just, I wasn't doing anything and it, it was, yeah, it was hard. It was very, uh, very rapid, very rapid. I, I feel that this is one of the main reasons why we wanted to have you come on and talk just because I think it's so cool that you can serve as a testimony to people that are listening to this that might be struggling with something similar. Um, so the first part, I wanted to break this down into two sections as far as uh, body image, goal setting, coming a, a re- release from that. There's a level of self-sacrifice that you had to commit to to compete and get to the, the place winner that you got to. That's not anything to be ashamed of. And I think what is most probably challenging is maintaining perspective. So like you were gaining weight, yes, but you were doing it for a specific reason. Um, However, I'm not sure if you'd say that you love the process of gaining weight just to get to that point. Um, But talk on a little bit, because I think it's valuable when you are going for a goal, whether it's this collegiate goal for me, maybe starting a business for somebody else trying to, to do a certain thing. What did you learn about yourself, even though you did have to sacrifice to get to that goal at the very end? Self-sacrifice is a great way to put it. Um, Reflecting on it now, that is, I look at that whole phase of my life as essentially just a self-sacrifice. I don't even look at college or my senior year where I had like the most success as, oh my gosh, that was one of the best years uh, of my life. I look at it as that's where I uh, figured out what it took at the extreme to achieve success. That's the extreme. Like it took five years, I guess four years, because my freshman year I kind of sucked. <laughs> it took four years of um, just insane amount of training, insane amount of focus. And so that's kind of the standard now that I have set for myself. I know that I don't think in my life I'll ever, I'll ever be able to put that much energy, that much time, and that much focus into something for the rest of my life. 
because it's not healthy. Now, it was great in that season because it showed me what I'm capable of. And so if anyone listening, like if you've gone through a, a, a stage in your life that's insanely hard, it might show you what you're capable of. It doesn't mean that that is the, uh, the blueprint of how you accomplish things from now on and from here on out. And that's what I talked about earlier, that I beat myself up a lot. And that's what kind of added to the emotional distress that I put myself in because to me, that was the standard. And to me, I needed to start my business immediately after I graduated college because I knew what it took. I knew that it took four years of all this intense sacrifice. Um, but now that I'm actually, I've actually started, I'm seeing some success in real business, um, you kind of learn to balance and when to turn on that switch. Um, when, okay, I have eight hours in my day, let me, let me make this eight hours of my day the what 24 hours of my day was back in college, right? But I only can limit to eight hours because if I do it for the whole 24 now, it's going to be bad news, real bad news. Yeah. And I think you bring up an awesome point because I think the pushing of human limits is really, really cool for a specific goal that you want. You ask any of the Olympic athletes right now that are competing, like they're going through this, but boy, I can't even begin to uh, like think about the sacrifices they've made with their family, their training protocols, all that stuff. But it is just a phase of life at the same token. And so now let's flip to the backside of that, which is how did you handle the mental and emotional struggle of going from where you were post event to where you are now? Because I think in some ways that is just admirable because someone or, you, you know, you could have kicked the can over and just like been there, you know, for the rest of your life. Um, and so I asked that for a little bit of inspiration for those that maybe want to recommit back to a, a version of themselves that they really like. But how did you go through that, man? Just to kind of speak openly on like some of the mental battles and emotional battles as well. Yeah, I think you kind of hit it when you said um, a lot of people, or I mean, me included, think that they need to get back to a certain point. Um, man, I was in such great shape then. Or man, that's when I had all the success. Or man, um, you know, five years ago, I was just crushing it. And it's hard, but trying to find a way at a, you know, where you're at in your life, where in, your mo in this moment in time, and what's the best path for you um, in this moment. And, and you kind of switch your mindset into, into try to take on new experiences, new inspiration that's going to fuel your future. Um, it's so easy to get stuck on your past successes and your, even your past failures too. It's so easy to like have those define um, who you are and it defined me for a while. I'll be honest, like I'm still working through it. Um, part of the reason, I guess we'll go back in, into college and, you know, kind of talk briefly about the, the body image issues. Um, I, I tell my story to a couple, like a lot, not a lot, but I, I definitely tell and share it. Um, but I talk about when I gained weight and I, I felt miserable. Um, but I don't talk about when I actually had all of the, um, like when I was in my freshman or sophomore year and I had all that intensity, all that time, all the energy, but I actually looked like insanely good and was in shape and that was all good weight. Um, and I think after I graduated, I tried to get back to like the 19 year old self, but the mm. 19 year old self was training like seven hours a day. Like that's fantastic. But I think men too, uh, kind of like I did it once, like I need, I can do it again. I need to hold myself to that standard because that's, I've done that before. Um, 
it's hard and i still i still battle i'm not gonna act like i'm sitting here and like oh everything's all all great um it's it's a process man yeah well and i i just to give you a compliment dude fighting the good fight because i think you'd be very happy with the progress that you've made up into this point and the version or we'll say we'll use the word evolution of where you are today and kind of have found a footing and it's fair to say that you have found that man i, I know in conversations before this it's really exciting to know business-wise, fitness-wise, all that stuff, where you are today. And I think that's as admirable as, you know, the self-sacrifice you went through uh, to compete at a high level. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, just to kind of balance it back and forth, uh, I think even myself, I, I feel like I've come from the opposite end of the spectrum. I've always been a skinny kid. Um, so being to the weight that I am now, I'm the heaviest I've ever been. I work out very regularly, but it's still like, what, where do I feel realistically comfortable at? And what is that range? Cause like I've wanted to work down to, you know, 190 or so, and I probably could get there, but I don't know if I would feel good at that kind of what I would set as a, a lower standard to, for me. So I just, I think it's an interesting topic and I think a lot of people can relate to it. Yeah, you know, I agree. Um, real quick, I want to, it, it, what you just said reminded me of, um, a very kind of a, a very common topic nowadays, which is to talk about self-love, self-care, right? Um, I kind of got fed up with that because of just all in pop culture, social media, everyone's talking about self-love, self-love, self-love. Like, dude, enough. I get it. I get it. And I hate to admit it, but I remember just a few, like, I think it was during the pandemic. It might've been like eight months ago where finally, after all of these freaking grueling years, the, the switch actually did flip. And where I started to, to really just try to think about, okay, what is best for myself and my body in this, in this season of my life? And getting down to 190 is not the best thing for my body. Like, what does it actually need in terms of like diet, in terms of sleep, in terms of food? What does my body actually need? And asking those questions to myself um i can't believe that i I was literally like i would make fun of people that kept talking about self-love self-love and now here i am talking about (laughs) it but it's hard to it it was hard for me to admit that and to ask those questions and to be vulnerable with myself um and just be open and honest with myself about it yeah and i uh i'm gonna turn it to cole here just a sec i think especially for guys vulnerability is a skill set that needs to come into play because it's hard for us with our egos and and our tough kind of outer shell but being vulnerable with ourselves is is really where it's at and or to begin the journey of self-love if you will all right all right buddy cole you can fire away here well jason you brought up two really really important rules of thought or or Things that, that I, I just want to bring back to light because I don't want to kind of go by the wayside. The first one, I'll just start with the one that's, that you're talking about at hand. Self-love doesn't mean you have to be soft on yourself or you have to go easy on yourself. It's actually quite the opposite. Self-love is what do I need? Exactly like you're saying, Jace, because it could be, I mean, I know me personally, I feel the best after I've gotten a really intense workout, right? This morning, for example, I sweat like crazy and I know that is me giving myself the self-love that I need. I mean, yeah. Is it important to understand your body and to, to give it rest when needed? Absolutely. I completely agree. But understanding there are times that, you know, 
I need to, I need to feed my body protein. There are times I need to feed my body vegetables. Okay. There's time that I need this really intense workout. Some days, all you need is just a good hard stretch one to get a sweat going, but also just to get that feeling of, Hey, I feel good. This is what I need. Um, especially on a, on a mental side or on a, on a, on an emotional side, maybe it's just, Hey, I need to take a break or around people. I mean, I, I like, there were so many days I can remember just going back to the pandemic, Jace, like you brought up where it's like, I need to just talk someone's ear off for about two hours. Like that is the <laughs> self-love I need. I don't need to isolate myself. I mean, self-love can mean what you, what you want it to mean, but it doesn't, there's a, there is a negative connotation to it a little bit because it's like, we instantly say self-love and it's like, well, you just got to love yourself for who you are. And, and you know, uh, you got to love the way you look and be okay with it. Well, that, that, that's all fine and well, that's great. Like, and if that brings peace to mind for people listening to this, great, by all means, like do what you got to do. You know, for me personally, I know that it's like, if I'm, if I'm going to get my, my social side out and, and just purge it, especially during a time where we're supposed to be spaced out from, from people and we are kept inside from one another and we're not, we're not supposed to be interacting. Well, that's exactly why Nick and I start this podcast. It's like, we just get on here and blab for two hours and then I'm good. I don't have to talk the rest of the night. I can go to the gym and just get an absolute crazy sweat. And that's my self-love. That's what it is. Um, it's just the same as a love language or, or how you show affection, any of those things. So I, I just think that's a huge, a huge, I just want to put a place, a huge emphasis on that because it is super important. It, there, there is a negative connotation to it and, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have to be, uh, the, the second thing that you talked about, um, I, I am drawing a little bit of a blank on, um, uh, so I'm going to turn it right back to Nick and hopefully it pops back in my brain and, and I'm going to interrupt him and, and just bring it right up next time. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Hey, did you want to add into something, Jason? I think you were onto something as he was yeah. talking. Yeah, so you mentioned um, love languages, so I'm not going to spend too long on this, um, I promise. But I've, I'm kind of having this, this moment of like clarity just at, well, as we talk through this, so I'm really grateful for you guys in this podcast because it's really, I'm doing some intense thinking and it's an intense like reflection. And it's That's awesome. why we do this, man. It's great, dude. Um, and I, I mentioned like the part of the halfway through the pandemic is when I, I started understanding that. And perfect timing my fiance just walked in the door and halfway through the pandemic is when I proposed um and so I think whenever I finally got into that mindset of um of committing yourself to somebody you know for the rest of your life you start to realize how important self-love actually is <laughs> you start to yeah to, um take it a lot more seriously because if you're not operating at your best self then um it's not just affecting you anymore it's affecting um, other people and even if you don't or if you're not dating or you don't have a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend um, just really community and that's what we all missed you know during the pandemic was not having loved ones <laughs> around and it, it's such a big part when um, you have others to you know that are in your court and others to to fight for yeah and and just to uh to add on to that point um the actor will smith said it beautifully he said you know, my, you know, her happiness or her productivity of life or her things are her responsibility, not mine. Essentially saying one plus one equals a beautiful two, not one plus or not, excuse me, not a half plus three fourths 
and expecting the other person to get, have that give and take. That's not a, a good ratio. And I, I like how he says that because I do think at the end of the day, you are the one responsible for where you're at and what you're doing. I mean, it could be great counterpart, which you guys are. I will say I've met your fiance. She's a stud. Um, but uh, yeah, man, no, I think that's good stuff. So we are just over an hour here, Jace. We have a couple things I want to knock out real quick. We're not going to get too much longer on the residents here. We've covered a lot of good stuff. So we're going to, I'm going to dive right in. So uh, you've answered some questions on the questionnaire that we gave you. One of those things is something you firmly disagree with. And I definitely didn't want to skip over this, but you firmly disagree with self-comparison in some capacity. So I'm curious, what is your thoughts on like self-comparison? Yeah, every uh, every creator that you that you see, um, wherever in your industry, anyone that's ahead of you um, or that's more talented, right? It's all based off of how how long have they been in the game? How long have they been a professional? Right? Go back to War of Art. How long have they been a professional? And some people have been doing in their career. Some people have been a you know a videographer, or whatever, for years and years. But have they actually flipped the switch to being a legitimate professional? Um, and so when I think, when I look at all these amazing, you know, super talented creators, these videographers, these um, even like marketing professionals and stuff, it's it's easy. And I think someone that was, you know, three or four years ago probably would have just fell back into paralysis by analysis and trying to think my way into being just as good as them. Um, but just understanding. They have been a professional longer, dude. It's all good. Start your freaking journey. Start your path. Start showing up every day, falling in love with the process. And um, it's, we talk, let's go back to self-love. You talk about what's the best thing for you and your business. Truly, what is the best thing for you? I can guarantee it's not to compare yourself to others. It's easier said than done, right? But if you commit yourself to self-love, you're committing yourself to your craft um, again, craft is not just thinking and playing. Craft is action. It's the execution. It's the implementation. It's the measuring. It's tracking. It's all of that. And you have to commit yourself to the whole process. I uh, I love so much, and I'll I'll be a little selfish here that you cover this because when I first entered my field with re- research consultant recruitment, my boss gave me a lot of good training material from industry like studs, and so I was like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna be one percent of one percent. I'm gonna be a rainmaker, is what they call it. And then that actually was terrible advice for me because I set the standard way too high that I was constantly failing myself. So then I was like. Why are you comparing yourself to someone that has done this for 10 years plus and you haven't even got to full year four or even three for that matter? So I just I wanted to touch on that a little bit selfishly because I think there's a lot of relevance to who you compare or we can even call it just get a glance as to what other people are doing. You don't want to fully ever compare yourself to somebody else. But like, if you're going to make it a realistic person and not like the one per, like a Tiger Woods a Michael Phelps, you know, just someone that's just unbelievably talented. <laughs> totally spot on. Um, I was thinking about uh, kind of healthy ways to compare yourself. Um, and the healthy way that I try to, I wouldn't say compare is, is, compare is probably the wrong word. Um, I look at people in my industry that are objectively better. Um, I look at everybody as, as allies. Everybody is an ally that I could potentially lean on. They could potentially lean on me, and 
uh, even if we have no idea, I've never slid into their DMs, I've never talked to them or whatever, that connection somewhere probably exists, right? Steven Pressfield. It probably is out there somewhere. Um, and knowing that allies are, are out there to help and you're out there to help, everyone is in this freaking thing together, everyone's in this space together. Um, it's easier said than done, I guess, for me, and being in a creative space, um, because there's a lot of different ways to like differentiate yourself between videographers and whatnot. And so you actually, there's not as much competition as you might as you might think, um, versus being in a you know a sales role or something like that, where it's a little bit more ruthless. <laughs> yeah, well, and and that's a good point too. I think that in a creative space specifically, you guys can lean on that energy maybe more collectively than a more cutthroat industry where it's like it's me or you and that's it. Um, very good though, man. I, I wanted to make sure we covered that just because we appreciated you sharing your thoughts. And uh, we didn't directly hammer on the other two, but we have collectively covered them throughout the duration of the conversation. So without further ado, I am going to turn it to Cole. Cole, do you have any other questions for Jace before we introduce him to the final portion here? I do. And it's one that, that stemmed, it stemmed from kind of the beginning of this podcast when we were talking about the war of art and you talk about how we're a we're was it we're a vehicle not a hero is that do i have that right yeah so the hero portion is actually mm-hmm. story brand from okay. Donald miller which is which is great um but i vehicle essentially is yes you are you, the art that you create does not come from mm-hmm. you you are mm-hmm. the vehicle in which you you just share it okay you take it for you take it from the source you take it from the space and it, it it's expressed through you so Jason, I want to ask you, for you, when you were at a point that you could fully grasp that, whether it was today during this podcast, whether it was you have always felt this way, was there ever an ego check when coming to that realization and understanding? When, whenever I came to that understanding, I think it was was when I was already on the, on the process and on the, the climb of um, dropping <laughs> the ego. Um, it's when I just started the business. It's when I was, I was failing. I had a lot of fear, didn't want to take action. And I was looking for um, really just some hope, some inspiration. And fortunately enough, that book came across me at, at the right time. And it, it really just yeah. rang true because I think it, it just takes the pressure off of you um, and allows you to create kind of freely and, and openly um, because I wanted to commit to kind of being a professional without knowing mm-hmm. what that was. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, that was, that, that put a lot of pressure on me and I was kind of beating myself up because I wasn't seeing the results. And so it kind of lifted that weight off of my, off of my chest and let me just kind of drop the ego and, just commit to being, uh, yeah, committing to being a vehicle. And that, that's a great answer. The reason I ask that is just being a collegiate athlete, you grow up or it, it's drilled into you so much that control what you can control, right? What, what are the controllables? What are the controllables? Attitude and effort. And when you jump into, or, or I guess better word, immerse yourself in a space that it's okay to not have an original thought, is that, and this will be the last one I ask just kind of before we, we, we finish this thing up, but is that 
a scary thought, knowing that, okay, I'm coming from this world where being the hero is not only revered and rewarded, but expected, especially at a high Division II level where you're competing at a national event. Um, is that scary? I mean, what what is, what is the mental space that you enter kind of shifting between those two worlds? Yeah, it is. It is scary and it's different. The way that you put it is, it was a hard, it was a hard change for me and a hard, hard to transfer between actually, you know, being that hero. It was kind of about um, what I could do. And I took a lot of credit and I was, I was selfish. And um, at the time, looking back, I can say it was all, you know, give all praise to my teammates, my coaches, all of that. Um, but moving into kind of a starting your own business um, in, a, in a creative role, I actually, pre- I prefer to, to try not to control as many things um, because I have a, have a terrible tendency to have just hyper control over every little piece of everything. Um, and so it's, it's a constant process for me, but I would, I, I try really hard <laughs> to um, allow some of that variability in my work and to flow with um, the inspiration in the, in, in the moment and, and kind of try to be in that moment. Um, hope that answered your question. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. Um, Nick, I can turn it back to you unless you are ready for me to, um, to, to hit off with four questions and, and wrap this thing up. State Street residents, do not skip over this. Listen, guys, if you've been following along since the first episode we put out, uh, you know how supportive, how proud, uh, and how amazed we are by Chi-Town Blankets and the work that they are doing um, in the city of Chicago, Illinois, and beyond, even stretching into Houston, Texas most recently. You guys, uh, if you again, if you follow along, you know how proud we are. You know how to donate. You know how to get involved. You know how to find the newsletter, get subscribed to that, so you're staying up to date. Uh, so here, here's all I'm asking you guys. Uh, if you've been following along, you know about all about this stuff. You hear about it every week. Tell a friend. Your work is done. Uh, that's all you got to do. Tell a friend, get them in the know and, and tell them how they can help. Your work is done from there. That's all I can ask. Uh, and you then can skip through this. Uh, if you are listening to this for the first time, go to the website, www.shytownblankets.com. You can donate monetarily by donating blankets themselves. They have an online store that you can pick out blankets that maybe mean something to you that have a special color, your favorite color, a certain pattern, maybe a certain logo. Uh, It's all through Amazon and it's set up on their website perfectly. Um, And then subscribe to that newsletter. Like I mentioned, get involved, know what's happening, get uh, get in the know and and stay up to date on all the great things that they're doing, like a thousand dollar or a thousand blanket, excuse me, donation that they received recently. Um, and all the growth potential and the growth happenings for Shy Town Blankets. We love Jack. We love Dom. Uh, and all the folks over there are doing amazing work. So get involved. Help the people of Chicago, Illinois, who are in most need. Uh, and let's spread that throughout the United States. So I, uh, I didn't tell Jace about this, but I'm going to now, which I love being spontaneous. And I know he does as well, too. So, Jace, every episode that we do, we have Cole's four questions to wrap things up. 
I will let him do the formal introduction to the portion. But uh, thanks for kind of diving into some of these really cool, fun topics. And we're going to we're going to end it on a high note if you're ready. Start up. We, uh, Jace, I will just say right off the bat, we, we have asked you some incredibly tough questions, so it doesn't end here. These are the last four tough questions you have to answer for the night. Um, and then I promise we'll go easy on you from there. So, uh, we, we, we do in fact do this with every single guest that comes on. Uh, the questions are different. They're spontaneous. They come from all sources of inspiration, whether it be my dumb brain, whether it be the wonderful tool of the internet, whether it be something I hear in passing conversations. So um, I, I have four prepared. Number one, what percentage of people do you believe routinely make their bed? And I use the word routinely lightly in terms of whatever a routine is to you. So it may be every other day. It may be every day. It could, whatever routine means to you, what percentage of people routinely make their bed? 45%. What do you base that number off of? I am dying to know. I don't know. I guess it depends what routine is. Routine to me, um, I, I don't use the word routine um, mm. lightly. Uh, routine it, to me is a commitment. Um, and so if you're saying, do I, do I make the bed every single day um, or do I miss one day in maybe a month? That's like a, that would be exceptional or acceptable for me. Um, I do not do that. So I can't imagine that 90% of other people do that. <laughs> 45% is the number we're going with. I like it. Second question. What is the, uh, what's, what's the proper way to pour a bowl of cereal? I am obsessed with cereal. I don't know if you knew that. No, I'm I had no obsessed idea. Obsessed with cereal. I didn't even oh know that actually. Gosh, I. It's like, if I could have four bowls a day, I would. Um, it's, it's a bad obsession. Um, how to properly pour a bowl of cereal? Well, it has to be the cereal first, and then almond milk to top it off. There's no. There really is no other way. So cereal milk, and you're saying almond milk is the, almond the best. Milk. Oh yeah, the best oh, milk of all yeah. milks to put oh, on your cereal. Yeah. Almond milk or soy milk, dude, definitely the best. Brings out the the crunch and the flavors by far. I've even put cereal in a protein shake, and I'm not proud of it. Oh my god, that's hilarious. <laughs> I, uh, I will say, Jace, I couldn't agree with you more on the fact that that is exactly how you should prepare a bowl of cereal. Um, nice, good sized bowl cereal first whatever cereal it is and then almond milk following that i completely agree um third question i don't know why i thought of this one actually i do so i have recently become a huge fan of snacking on cherries like actual cherries right cherries have a pit in them right so you gotta you gotta pick off the stem pop it in your mouth get the cherry out it's kind of fun because being an ex-baseball player you do that with sunflower seeds so it's kind of a similar concept right spit it out and the, the whole thing, you get your little snack. Maraschino cherries, like the, the cherries that you put on like an ice cream sundae. If a maraschino cherry had a pit, what would that pit be made of? Would it be something similar to like a normal natural cherries pit? Or would it be like a piece of candy? Would it be like something gummy or something like some sort of like gooey um, 
um, substance that you find in like, uh, I can't remember those snacks right now, but they're like the little gummy snacks that I used to eat as a kid. Gushers. Yes. What, what would the pit of a maraschino cherry be if you could invent it? I was already leaning towards like the gusher goo. But like when you, you kind of poke a hole in a gusher and it kind of like, there's like a little bit of goo. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that that would be, man, what a great question. <laughs> so that's in what it would grade, be, like a, like a gusher yeah. in the middle of a maraschino cherry. The gusher goo. The okay. gusher goo. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, honestly, I, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty firm about that. Okay, fair enough. That, we, that should be our idea. We should run with that. We should make millions of dollars off of that. Uh, last, last, last question I have, what is something, or, or I'll ask it this way. What is the absolute best smelling kind of garbage? I, that's a great question. (laughs) What is the, what is the absolute best smelling garbage? Man, you could get really existential with this if you wanted to. Please, by all means. Because then it goes into like, it, you know, it, garbage could just be, a, is it a descriptor? Like, is it an actual noun? Or are we talking about legitimate trash in a dumpster? Um, then what, you know, anything could be included in a dumpster, right? You could put a freaking gold in a dumpster. It could be considered garbage, right? One man's trash, another man's treasure. So it mm-hmm. goes into like, Shoot. That's smelling garbage. Do you have an answer for this? Like, have you been pondering on something? I, I, so I, I do, I do have an answer for this. Yeah. Yes. I just, I don't want to give it away because it, it may be too good of an answer. I'll be completely honest. Garbage. I think if you gave me gave me an hour of that of that thinky time i put mm-hmm. on some good music um really start thinking of some ideas i think i would be able to come up with something okay so let me just let me try to let me try to to to, to jog your your brain just a little bit to get get, get us thinking in the right yes, direction please. my answer would be orange peels the reason i say that is like the best answer is because it is true waste but yet it smells amazing. Like if you take an orange peel, if you peel an orange and you throw that in the garbage, instantly garbage smells like oranges. I think that's a fantastic smell for your garbage. That's a good point. That's a good point. I was thinking of, uh, I was thinking of like, what about coffee grounds? Mm. Would that like mask? I feel like, cause that might mask the, the actual garbage. Mm-hmm. The yeah, clean smelling garbage could be a good smelling garbage as well. Help you out a little bit. As I could think about this, for, I'm probably going to dream about this tonight. <laughs> That's fantastic. Dream about garbage. <laughs> Jace, I will. I'll let you off the hook on this, just because the that was like I thought of that question today, and I'm like, there's going to be no way he knows how to answer this. Although I love the fact that you got kind of thinking. There are so many ways you can take this because what is truly garbage, what smells good, what would be considered garbage, you can throw anything in garbage, so there's a million ways to think of it. Hopefully, we've tied people who are listening to this brain, like people's brains that are listening to this into, a, into like a, a total pretzel, a total knot, um, and, and so I, 
I'm hoping that's what's happening as people are listening to this. But I'll just say, Jace, um, thank you very much for, for, for coming on, man. It's been super awesome. I feel like we've covered everything under the sun with you tonight. Um, <laughs> we have absolutely hammered you with questions that you're going to go to bed thinking about just like the wildest crap as it pertains to garbage, as it pertains to uh, collegiate athletics and and the journey you go through during that. And then obviously being a creative uh, in the creative space and, and all the brainstorming plus action versus inaction that goes along with it. So um, thank you very much for, for taking out, taking time out of your evening to, to spend a little bit with us and, and officially become a, a resident on state street. No, absolutely. This was, it's, it's so much fun. I, I don't, uh, put myself in these situations very often but it's really essential for me mm-hmm. um, as i'm like going into the next sort of phase i'm going to be starting a youtube channel i need to be uh, getting in front of the camera more often um interviewing certain creative people and just building more of a or, or trying to intentionally be a part of a community um and so i'm very very grateful for the questions and for uh, being put into this space because it's great practice i I love uh love talking with you guys and obviously need to stay in touch more because now i i need to come with a good answer about garbage (laughs) i'll think on i'll think on it and let you guys know that's awesome man um do me a favor cole if you could plug our social media i will then turn to jason ask him to do the same and then we'll get it wrapped up Sure. So, uh, Facebook is State Street Podcast, Twitter, Twitter, State Street Pod, and then uh, Instagram. Are I think it's probably our, our best platform. Nick, great job at State Street Pod as well. Uh, we'll be we'll be posting stories as far as it pertains to the podcast specifically. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, rate, subscribe. Um, any any sort of feedback, any sort of of rating, any sort of following that can be garnered uh, is appreciated. Is it necessarily is, is it necessarily necessary? No, not at all. We 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 enjoy doing this. Um, but any feedback, good, bad, indifferent, uh, or any sort of suggestion is always always greatly appreciated. And uh, I think Nick and I are are at a point where we're more than willing to to implement things that people want to hear about, people want us to talk about, and so. Uh, yeah, State Street Pod on Instagram, Twitter, State Street Podcast on Facebook. Thanks, brother. Jace, just for these residents, if they want to follow you, do you have just a singular Instagram account, or how would you like to share your social for the folks listening in? Yeah, Instagram's the best uh, platform for me. Um, it's Jace Claycow, which I guarantee uh, you probably won't be able to to spell. So I'll give you a little bit of help. It's uh, it's J A C E K A L. E-I-K-A-U, Jace Kaleko. Awesome, man. Awesome. So before I say my thank yous, I have one final question for you. And that is, after you have eaten the cereal, yes or no question here, do you drink the milk? I chug it, my friend. That, my friend, is the best way to complete the bowl of cereal for those cycles out there that dump the milk out, curse you for wasting product. that makes me sick to my stomach. That someone would throw that away. Oh man, this is uh, this is a more than a pleasure for us. I loved kind of bouncing back from a conversation that was super tactical and strategic to dive in and talking about books, talking about life, talking about really important stuff. And uh, all at the end of the day, we're just trying to fight the good fight, right? Dude, we are. And I, this is the first uh, first podcast I've been on. I, I legitimately cannot thank you guys enough. It, it's it's insane. It. it helps 
me really uh, get out of my own in head. And you know how we talk about overthinking all of that. And now I, uh, you know, it just puts my thoughts into action, whether that's me doing something or just engaging with, with somebody else. Um, I love it, man. You guys are doing the good stuff. Uh, well, yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I think there are people that'll find inspiration in you, like hearing your story and, and talking about this stuff as well, too. But thank you guys so much for tuning into this episode. And until next time, guys. Mm-hmm.